0: Welcome to the 12th episode of Between the Lines. We first began to broadcast this podcast one year ago. When we started, we wanted to bring together some truly inspiring stories and ideas for positive change. We didn't just want to review books, but instead we wanted to explore and discuss, giving life to the lines on the pages by speaking with the authors about their wider work and reflections. In this episode, we take a look back at some of the standout moments and have brought together what could be seen as a checklist for change. We start with the simple brilliance of Robert Chambers, who discussed his book, Can We Know Better? Reflections for Development, and talked about the need for good development and reflexivity.
1: My definition of development is a, a, a bit of an escape. It's, quote, good change, unquote. So the question is then, what's good, which throws one back on values and whose values, and what changes is significant. But the reason for having that definition is to throw people back and say, effectively, define it for yourself.
2: And how does that work, given predisposition to bias and error? And, I mean, it's a bit of a recursive.
1: Yes. Well, in the Um, last chapter, and one or two other points, particularly in the chapter four, which is about rigor for complexity, I talk about, and here's a jargon word, reflexivity. And what I mean by reflexivity is um, holding a mirror up to yourself and the way in which you learn what you see, what you don't see, how you categorise things, what your values are, and how this affects your whole mindset. Mm. So I think reflexivity is very, very important.
0: Mm. This idea of reflective practice was subsequently picked up in an interview with Hilary Cotton. Who've been looking at a radical transformation of the UK welfare state?
3: You mentioned a bit about uh, reflective practice, yes. which is a favourite, which is a well-known topic here. And uh, I was just wondering again whether what people's reactions were to that, your colleagues and other people, that you would go through this process of looking at what you're doing. And again, returning to what Robert Chambers says, his famous phrase, embrace error. Yes. You know, if you think you've done something wrong, admit it. Yes. I mean, was that was that important in your work?
4: Yes. I mean, I say that all our work is always a prototype. And I kind of use the analogy of Formula One, that even the winning car is still a prototype that you can find error in, you can take apart, and you can improve. And I think that mindset of sort of tinker and get going is really, really important to me. But it's so interesting that you say you talk about reflective practice here. You see nobody I know talks about reflective practice I need to spend more time here and one of the things that quite a lot of the book is dedicated to how hard it is to be a professional in current welfare services and why we've got huge vacancies in the NHS and so on and how can we have well supported professional careers and I think reflective practice is part of that and in everything I started I put that in but it's expensive and that often gets a bit that's cut out later down the line when we're no longer around so it's good that you're emphasizing it here.
3: I think certainly in our research, when we become involved with communities, that that, that, is, that is part of it.
4: Well, As I think that there's this commitment to do. kind of really good intellectual thinking and practice here at IDS and that that leads, That's very unusual and it leads to that kind of iteration and reflection. Mm-hmm.
0: So how does change actually happen? Well, we spoke with Duncan Green from Oxfam, who wrote a book aptly named How Change Happens.
3: Well, many, many years ago, I studied physics. And um, I think it must have got under my skin a bit because I sort of went all physicist at some points during, during the book. Because what I realized was that we had a... We'd somehow acquired a terribly linear view of change. That If I do this, I will achieve this. And if I get results, I'll be able to attribute it to my action. And the more I thought about that, the more absurd that seemed as a model for most kinds of change. So if you think about your own life, how you grew up, trying to raise your kids, trying to ride a bicycle across London. None of those are linear activities. All of them involve unpredictability, responding to unexpected events, thinking on your feet, being flexible, agile, everything that's not in a classic project plan. So I suppose I started to realize that we we had ended up somewhere very artificial and not terribly useful. And so by rethinking and saying, okay, suppose we are in these complex and unpredictable systems, What does that mean for activism? It doesn't mean you give up, but it means you do activism differently.
0: So Duncan added the need to consider complex systems rather than the linear view of change and being open to unpredictability to our checklist for change. The call to be unconventional was passionately reinforced by author, former diplomat and development professional Kul Chanja Gultam.
5: Be prepared to take risks. Be prepared to go to non-conventional partners. So in immunization programs, we did not rely on health officers only. When immunization were done in a big way in Colombia, you mobilize the police force, you mobilize the army, you mobilize the Catholic church. So be prepared to do non-conventional things. Reach out to to, to, to others. And then I would say monitor carefully because monitor and have a, a system whereby you check your progress, identify weaknesses, tackle the areas where you are not making, making, making progress.
0: So non-conventional partners, tick, take risks, tick, and check your progress, tick. But we also need to consider where things overlap. Researcher Professor Ian Schoons talked about his livelihoods work and adapting existing approaches to achieve the Sustainable Development Goals.
6: Is actually the livelihoods approaches are sitting there ready for thinking about implementing the SDGs. They're integrated, there's analytical framework, there's an approach that, as you say, links pertinent and analytical questions that are political or have political dimensions to them with practical methods. And let's do it. Thinking about, uh, in a livelihoods approach type of way, about implementing the SDGs and doesn't have to be rural. I mean, my book focuses on the rural dimension, but it could be in, it could be in Brighton, it could be in Delhi, it could be in rural Zimbabwe. The same broad questions apply. So if we want to uh, address the dual challenges of poverty and inequality, as well as environment and uh, injustice, then we have to think in that integrated way. And sometimes it's quite useful to look back. Mm-hmm. and learn from experience in the past because actually reinventing the r- wheel from scratch mm-hmm. is often a little bit tiring and sometimes there are some good ideas there It can be repurposed for the con- contemporary era but um so all all the people out there thinking about the SDGs and their implementation wherever you are um you can have a look at the book and see if whether, whether this is a framework for for moving the SDGs from the sort of rhetorical step to something that's practical and and implementable on the ground.
0: In order to understand these cross-cutting challenges, Professor Nicholas Stern talked about his co-authored book, How Lives Change. It was based on a study of a village in India that spanned seven decades. He talked about the need for sustained approaches to better understand how people adapt and innovate.
7: If you think of Sustainable Development Goals, you know, we talk about employment, poverty, hunger, I- inequality, pollution, um, gender relations. You know, I've, I've gone through probably eight or nine of the SDGs, mm-hmm. but they're, of which there are 17. Um, but if you want to understand how you can make a difference, you have to understand how lives change. You have to understand how people find ways out of of, of poverty, how their willingness to take risks and their ability to spot opportunities is there, but they can be greatly enhanced if they get support um, through the health and the education and the Mm. credit markets and the backup uh, employment schemes and so on.
0: In understanding how lives change, Hilary Wainwright spoke about the need to learn from people's capacity and skills in achieving social justice. When somebody enters a
8: factory, they, they they leave their rights and their their citizenship behind almost. I mean okay trade unions have been key in resisting that total oppression. But still it's not a democracy at most factories. And it seemed to me there's always going to be a a contradiction between the goals of social democracy, which is social justice, and the economic environment in which social democratic governments and parties work. And obviously that's got worse with the increasing monopolisation and sort of gigantism of of corporations, which have increasingly captured state institutions. So I, I felt you can't achieve any kind of real social justice unless you change the economy, how do you do that? It seemed from just experience that you've got to start from, from the people that are suffering, that are that are subject of injustice in the economy, and and start from their organisation and learn from their capacities. So I'd, I'd witnessed a lot of experiences of workers actually using their trade union strength to develop alternatives using their skills, whether in the private sector, their technological design and engineering skills, or in the public sector, their knowledge of care, of providing good services, which is often
0: suppressed in the way the state is organised. Citizen Voice came up regularly in our conversations. When IDS researcher Patter Scott Villers discussed her work on food riots, she talked about the strength and agency that people can have when speaking to power.
2: Food riots and food protests and and the associated uh protests about provisions you know the provisions of the basics of of allowing people to make their contribution to society are absolutely fundamental to most of the people in most of the world Mm -hmm. Um, and it's these moments of, of voice it's these moments of political power which are perhaps it's not i shouldn't say moments because the the power and the voice come out at that point and they're picked up and amplified and, and sort of things are done with the, that voice by media. But actually what's happening is a political relationship that's going on all the time between uh, ordinary people and those who have the power to you know, have policies of redistribution and recognition and so on. So it's a crucial development issue to understand mm-hmm. this is not about technical advice to policymakers. This is about the people saying, don't forget us. We are really important. We are the citizens of this state.
0: Maya Unitan, a researcher at the University of Sussex, expanded this point further to discuss power and rights and how it links to justice.
5: Okay, yes. Well, actually reimagining uh, rights is, is that, that that subtitle is actually linked to the core argument that I, that I make in the book. Um, which is really, you know, to make a case for a more inclusive approach Mm. to reproductive rights, uh, which accounts for sort of diverse senses of entitlement and moral claims on the reproductive body. And really, it speaks to the questions, really, of how and whose rights are to be delivered, and in what way, how are they going to be realized? Mm. And, And really, this is Every time it you know it came back to me that the presence of rights upholding kind of institutions and and laws uh, do not in themselves deliver rights. They don't deliver reproductive justice. Justice. So the central focus on on the, that was really the core concern on the ground, wasn't it? Justice. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And it is. And you know, as 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 one of the respondents seeking sort of compensation through the family. Courts for domestic violence told me they said, well, you know, rights have arrived. You know, we rights have come. Adhikar um, hai, but justice is not. Yes. has not. has not yeah. has not come, and that really got me thinking about this relationship between rights and justice, justice. which I think mm. is is so important. And it's that link between rights and justice that I think has to be the core focus of development policy and planning. Mm. And, and, and I really think in this sense, you know, the this, this thinking then on rights-based approaches within global health and legal institutions has to be reimagined Imagined. in that kind of context.
0: Our checklist for change wouldn't be complete if we didn't talk about the role that growing social movements have to play. Providing examples from her digital democracy work in Kenya was Nanjala Nayabola
9: my favorite thing to have to witness over the last couple of years has been how women especially have been using radical feminists have been using social media to organize and i do have an account about how you know the the mainstream women's rights organizations have become captured by the political system and therefore stuck in this um discourse this it's all it's very disempowering discourse about who women are and who women should be and I give the example in the book about the leader of the Mindaleo Yawanawake Association which is the largest women's rights organization in Kenya who went on television and said I'm only a feminist until I get to my front door when I enter my house I leave the feminist at the feminism at the door and I become a wife and mother and it's <laughs> it's such a bizarre moment to 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 encounter because what she's suggesting is that feminism is incompatible with being a wife and being a mother, and that is something that radical feminists in Kenya are rejecting. There's very little space for radical feminism in the public sphere in Kenya. There's very little space for people who challenge traditional family values, and especially lesbians, especially, you know, people who are parts of sexual and gender minorities won't find representation in the public sphere at all prior to the social media era but what we're seeing right now is movements being built you know we are 52 percent is one of my favorite examples it's starts off as a hashtag but actually has a very significant offline component because there are meetings there are people who are showing up lobbying state because the constitution of Kenya provides that not more than one third of the any public body should be made up of more than, of, of either um, gender. So, right now, every single public, uh, every single arm of the legislature in Kenya is unconstitutional, as is the judiciary, um, and this is the executive, the senior executive. And so, we are fifty-two percent as a point of mobilization by radical feminists, by women, to try and draw attention to this issue, and and to change the conversation from women being given benevolent favours from the patriarchy, you know, here you can have an extra seat to saying We actually demand representation because we are 52% of this country's population.
0: Of course, we also have to consider the need for timely interventions and an understanding of where we're at and what's gone before. Ayesha Khan explained this well when she talked about her book, The Women's Movement in Pakistan, Activism, Islam and Democracy.
10: First of all, I felt that the way in which history is written in Pakistan is very controlled by Mm. the state and a lot of the alternative discourses and um, dissident movements never make it into the history books. So I felt that the younger generation in Pakistan really needed to know what was the struggle that women had been involved with for the past 40 years. I also felt it was time to take stock Of accomplishments and obstacles that uh, we had faced because initially we were discouraged that we couldn't reverse some of the damage that had been done during Zia's Islamization but I think that now if we take a long view of it we can see that there have been some important breakthroughs like women's entry into politics and I wanted to explain the whole trajectory.
4: And is there a particular relevance to this moment in history? Why now?
10: Well, I think the urgency comes from the fact that the human rights discourse and um, arguing for women's empowerment within a secular framework and a rights-based framework, pushing for civil and political rights, is now somehow seen as a passé way of advocacy. And I think that in Western academia, certainly there's a lot of focus now on pious women and their engagement with their growth as part of a divine order— And I think that the politics of these groups has been lost as the interest in Islamist women has somehow gained after 9-11. So I felt that it was really important to show that, you know, for our women's movement in Pakistan, human rights is a very central and bedrock of how we approach um, our politics and that actually even pious women's groups have very serious politics that need to be addressed.
0: So we have a checklist emerging. All good, right? Well, maybe life isn't always that simple, as Duncan Green reminded us.
3: And I said, but, but I don't want to do another toolkit. The whole book is saying that, you know, you can't have these blueprint, cookie cutter, toolkitty approaches to change. So the compromise was to talk about an approach, which is the way of being, the kind of nature that you need to try and develop to be an effective activist and the kind of questions you need to ask. And that's as far, and I certainly am not going to suggest what the answers should be. And the kind of ways of, of being are things like um, being curious, actually being really interested in what's changing in the world around you. Many activists are just too tired to be curious. They do ridiculous hours and they've stopped being curious. And I think that, that is a real problem. Humility, with you know, that ability to, to actually see the limitations on your own knowledge and still function. Um, and then the readiness to work with people you disagree with, you know, uh, civil, NGOs and civil society organisations. Sometimes it looks like they're creating a monoculture of people who think just like them, have the same views, the same politics. And that's very bad news if you're working in these complex systems because diversity produces strength. And
0: yeah. resilience. So Duncan reminds us that people are messy and change is not neat and linear. We should take pinches of good practice from all of our speakers and learn from each other. And so we go full circle and we end series one with heartfelt reflections from
1: Robert Chambers. Martin Luther King is very good on this. So let me read you something that he said. And this is about power and love. He said, power without love is reckless and abusive. And love without power is sentimental and anemic. Power at its best, is love implementing the demands of justice. And justice, at its best, is power correcting everything that stands against love. It's a very um, moving and, I think, insightful and important statement from Martin Luther King. And so, yes, I end with the theme of love, because I think this is the way forward. It's to do with how we behave, how we relate to one another, and about process. So much that's in this book is about process um, and about open-endedness and empathy and understanding other people, reflexivity, all of these characteristics, these they hang together and they point the finger much more than we've had it pointed in the past towards the personal dimension in development and i'm using development to cover all countries now the personal dimension has been neglected compared with learning with academic qualifications we need universities we need institutions training institutions research institutions which pay much more attention To the personal, to personal reflexivity, to personal actions and behaviour and to love.
0: It's been a great year and we've really enjoyed all of these conversations and hope you have too. If you've just joined us, do go back and have a listen to the previous episodes. We'd really love to hear from you with your feedback. And if you have any ideas for episodes, you can email between the lines at ids.ac.uk. Also, a cheeky plug. It really helps to boost the podcast if you can rate and review it in your podcast app. And as ever, if you like an episode, share it on Twitter with the hashtag IDS between the lines. Join us next month when we kick off series 2. There are so many more people to speak to and ideas to explore. Who knows where it will take us?